Well, it's good to see you again, and welcome to our Graceway Baptist Church Sunday School lesson. We are continuing in the uh, New City Catechism, and uh, we had a Sunday, you remember, uh, back in February where we didn't meet, so our dates are a little bit off, but this is for March the 6th of 2021, originally for February 28th, and so uh, hopefully we're all together on the same page, and welcome to March. March always gives a little bit of hope that the weather is going to get warmer, that spring is going to come, and uh, we look forward to that. We also uh, kind of ready. This is Oklahoma. I have seen it snow pretty good in March, but hopefully we've uh, paid our dues and we're through all of that, and uh, hope that you enjoy this season of the year. Uh, Easter will be coming up in about a month, and we always enjoy that, and uh, just the hope, I guess, that spring always brings. I think God has designed seasons in the, uh, in, in the world, in nature, to kind of correspond even with our life. And uh, when you think about uh, what season of life you might be in, you might be in the springtime of life, you're young and everything is hopeful. You might uh, be in the summertime of life and um, maybe the fall or maybe even the winter of life. And uh, each season has its own beauty. Each season has its own purpose. And uh, it's just a joy to be alive. And we're thankful that God has given us this privilege. Now we want to learn how to live right. And we want to do it with the right attitude. I always think of Brother Carl, Carl Kerrigan, for those of you who don't know. He uh, came every year and preached in our church. Just a great man of God. I miss I miss those guys that are uh, in heaven now. Look forward to seeing them again. But do you remember him making the statement that as important as it is to be right, it's even more important to be right, right? What do you mean by that? To be right is one thing, but if you have a stinking attitude about it, a prideful attitude about it, an ugly attitude about it, a snobbish attitude about it, it doesn't do any good. But when you're right and you have the right attitude and the right spirit, it's a wonderful thing. And so when we talk about living life and we talk about living it in the right way, in a way where the righteousness that God has given us through faith in his son that is imputed to us, that's an accounting term. It's put on our books. The righteousness of Christ is put on your record as soon as you trust him as Savior and Lord. Now you need what the Puritans would call imparted righteousness. And this is the righteousness that takes over your mind. This is the righteousness that controls your actions. This is the righteousness that other people can see. Now, we always have to be careful because sometimes when we live our lives so that others can see that we are right, we may be doing that and yet not be right with God. Our heart may be corrupted, but we are so careful that outwardly, like wearing a mask, that we appear to be righteous before men, that we miss the whole point. Because actually what is supposed to happen is our heart is right with God, and when our heart is right with God and we are loving Him, then we want to treat other people right, and we want others 
to see Jesus in us so that they know our great God and his salvation and his grace as well. We've got to get both of those to line up, to, to plug in. One influences the other. You see, if all it is is external and it's not from the heart, that, that's what makes us hypocrites. That's what turns us in to judgmental, self-righteous Pharisees. But when our heart is right with God and then our actions then are conformed to what he wants, it means his righteousness is permeating everything that we do. And we want to be, well, you remember Jesus told us to be salt and to be light. And that's what it means, the righteousness of God flowing through us. It's actually God doing it, isn't it? Because he put his spirit within us. He gave us the ability to understand his word and his will and his ways. And he is the one that lives through us so that others might glorify him. And uh, that's the way the Ten Commandments are supposed to work. We've got to get it right, but it's got to be right, right. In other words, I want you to think about that. That's true for every area of your life. Now, our question is, what does God require in the first, second, and third commandment? What does he want? What is supposed to happen in our lives? Well, here's the answer. First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. And third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence, honoring also his word and works. Well, if we could get that down, the others would fall into place, wouldn't they? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14 says, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Now, obviously, if you do that and you really do fear the Lord, it means you're going to be honest about what you took the oath. You're going to be honest about the promise, the commitment that you made, whether it is taking out a car loan or whether it is a marriage vow or whether it is a testimony in a court of law, whatever it might be. When you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, it would also change politics, wouldn't it? When they put their hand on that Bible and say, so help me God, you shall take oaths in his name, the name that is the name of the only true and living God. Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, little g, the gods of the peoples, who are all around you. Do not play around with idols, with false gods, wherever you may find them, whoever um, might be um, doing it, whoever might be influencing you, whoever might seem to kind of have it all together. The devil is really, really good at putting up people who don't believe in the right God and... Um, are tricked and deceived into believing false doctrine and then setting them up so that they look really, really appealing. So if you were an Israeli and you are a farmer, which most of them were, and your society is dependent upon rain, and let's say that the rain is not coming 
And as you are coming back from offering sacrifices at the tabernacle or the temple, whatever the case may be, and you are coming home and you notice that at your Canaanite neighbors, there's music and boy, the food smells great. And uh, there's a lot of celebration. And uh, you wonder, what in the world are they doing? Those Canaanites are strange people. And, you know, got a little bit weird. But uh, he's a nice guy. Nice guy. I like him for a neighbor, but he is a little bit strange. And later on, you uh, run across him. Maybe both of you are watering your sheep or, you know, whatever you might do. And uh, you say, what were you doing over at the house the other day? Oh, we were having a festival for Baal. We believe that Baal is the god of weather, and we're asking him to send rain. Okay? And you just kind of chuckle, and uh, you say, well, Canaanites have some strange ways. Or maybe you even engage him, and you say, well, tell me about it. Tell me about it. And he begins to tell you about their worship, and it actually kind of sounds like fun. And uh, you go back to the house, and a strange thing happens. That night, you hear the rumble of thunder. You see the flash of lightning, and the rain begins to fall. And in your heart, you wonder if maybe what they did with their worship of Baal might have had something to do with it. And maybe uh, in your in your head, you go, no, 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 this is, this is God. I worship and praise the true and the living God, Yahweh. But maybe there's this nagging thing of, what if? What if? And the next time there's a drought, you're a little bit more curious, and you are thinking, well, could it hurt if we participated in that festival? Okay? I think I shared this same illustration maybe a week or so ago. But I want you to think about it, how easy it is to get sucked in because, you know, there's something to it. You know, if you ever were to read your horoscope, which you shouldn't, um, you know what will happen? You will read down there that whatever your sign is, be careful today, your life is in danger. And you chuckle, you don't think much of it. Then it's on that particular day at your lunch hour, you're about to step out into the street. Someone grabs your shoulder and says, don't go yet. And about that time, a car runs a red light and they go right past you and you go, whoa, I almost got hit. And then you remember your life is in danger. And all of a sudden in your mind, you're thinking, which is the only place to think, by the way, in your mind, the thought surfaces wow, there's something to that. All of a sudden, it becomes a little bit credible. You're not a full-fledged believer, but there's a little bit of credibility. And if that happens more than once, how are you going to respond to that? And this is what was happening in Israel. Every time something seemed to give Baal or Ashtoreth or Malach or any of those other gods just a, a little bit of credibility, Maybe there's something to it. God, Yahweh God, is not acting as fast as we thought he would, but maybe these rituals help. Knock on wood. You ever heard anybody do that? What in the world is all of that about? It's superstition is all it is. But you know what? Things can happen. And you go, well, there's something to that. 
and you give credibility to it and you violate these commandments. Now, that's the way the devil has it set up so that you and I sometimes have trouble focusing in on what is true. There just might be something to it. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, he said a uh, long, long time ago, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Well, Augustine was very influential uh, on John Calvin and Martin Luther. Um, he is kind of the, maybe the grandfather of the uh, Reformation. And he's right. Jesus told us in the Gospel of Matthew, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We forget that sometimes. We think that there's a, another place, a better place. We think that... Um, as we uh, have worked with God and walked with God, sometimes the road gets hard. Sometimes it's an uphill trek. Sometimes we get bored. Sometimes we get impatient. Sometimes we are attacked. And we think that maybe if I could just get off of this road, then there would be some rest. I need a change. I need something different. And about that time, you see a sign. It's an exit sign, and it says, something different. And it was a sign that was put there by the devil to distract you. And you exit, and you get off of that road, and you know what? It does feel good, and it does feel restful, and it's exciting, and it's new, and it does seem to work. You don't understand that there is a trap waiting for you, but for right now, it does seem to be working. This is what the Lord is cautioning us against in all of this. So think with me about these points. Number one, what do we learn in these commandments? Well, number one, that polytheism is prohibited. This is from Psalm 115, verses 2 through 11. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Now their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. And noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. And feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Now those who make them become like them. It's a euphemism, I think, for eventually everybody's going to die. And that is, uh, that description of an idol is a perfect description of a corpse, isn't it? You can still see the mouth, but there's no sound. Nose is there, but it doesn't smell anything. Ears, but it doesn't hear. And so it's going to happen. You're going to become like that inanimate idol that you worship. Okay? They will become like them. So do all who trust in them, O Israel, or O people of God. Now here's the exhortation. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, the priest, trust in the Lord. You'd think they would be able to, but sometimes priests have trouble too, don't they? He is their help and their shield. 
You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So the psalmist gives us this description of any God except the true and the living God, and it is worthless and helpless. He even says, oh, house of Aaron, you know, pay attention to this. Why? Well, Aaron is the one who made the golden calf for them when they were at Mount Sinai, remember? Even priests can be wrong. Even priests can lead you astray. Don't ever do it just because the preacher does it. Don't ever do it just because the deacons do it. Don't ever do it because somebody influential seems to be doing it and it works for them. They can lead you astray, can't they? And uh, you can be led into a place where you're going to become just like them and <clears throat> you're not going to like it. So this prohibition is for our protection. God's not just doing it because he's jealous and doesn't want any other gods getting attention. He's trying to protect us. The gods of the nations are empowered by demons, the enemies of the Lord, and they want to try to build strongholds even in your life. And these idols are man-made and they're powerless. So their power is not coming from the true and living God, is it? And it's not in that chunk of stone or wood or anything else. It's coming, of course, from our enemy and the enemy of the Lord. So poly polytheism is prohibited. Number two, understand that idolatry is always improper. There's never a good time. There's never a right time. There's never an exception that is made for idolatry. The Lord doesn't say, well, why don't you try it? I was at a doctor, a specialist for my eyesight, and uh, he obviously is trained in, uh, you know, as a medical doctor and has a certain thought and philosophy on things. And we happened to ask him, well, what about, are there different alternative medicines? Are there different herbs or supplements or anything that we could take that could help? And he said, I don't know. And then he looked at me and he said, but if I were in your situation, I would try it. I would try something holistic. Now, that didn't mean he was a believer in it. It just meant that he say, was saying, I don't have anything to offer you and I can't do anything about your optic nerve atrophy. So you might as well try something else. And I think a lot of people get sucked into false religion and false doctrine because they think that they've tried it all. They think that they've tried walking with God. They think they've tried trusting God and his word. And so, uh, well, you got to try something. You can't just sit there. The Bible warns us in Psalm 96, 4 and 5. Psalms are full of warnings against idolatry. And these are the worship songs of the Hebrews. So why they kept falling into that is uh, amazing, isn't it? It says, uh, Psalm 96, 4, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, little g's. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So whenever we even play around with a little bit of false religion, idolatry, false doctrine, that type of thing, what we're really doing is downplaying the greatness of God. Well, God, you tried, 
but you couldn't do it. You remember that Lay's potato chip commercial that said he tried, but he couldn't do it? I think a lot of people feel like that when they pray to God and God doesn't answer the prayer the way they want it answered or in the timing that they want it answered, it enters their mind, he tried. He tried. He's a good God. He tried. He did his best, but he couldn't pull it off. And they don't see him as a sovereign one who can do anything at any time that he chooses to do. But he also has very good reasons for not doing it when he chooses not to do it. He doesn't follow our instructions. He's not a slave to us. We are his people and his servants. It downplays God's greatness. I'll try something else. And then it inflates their importance. And so this idol that I carved out of wood, which is just a piece of wood, a part of a dead tree that Yahweh made. Well, now when I worship it, when I bow down to it, when I sacrifice to it, then I'm inflating the piece of wood's importance. And everybody's going to see that. My family's going to see that. My kids are going to see that. And uh, they're liable to think that maybe that piece of wood is more important than it really is anyway. I mean, it's actually going to rot and fall apart one day, but it sure looks impressive now, doesn't it? And when you look at the contrast, the psalmist talks about it. Their idols are worthless. They're just worthless. They're junk, in other words. But our God made the universe. Contrast all of that. Something that is made by man's hands and someone who made man and who made the chunk of wood, in fact, who made the sun, moon, and stars and beyond, why would you ever bow before something that inferior? And why would you ignore someone who is so superior? That's what we learn. Number three, that God's holy name is not to be normal. Boy, we have normalized God's name. People are not afraid to use it in vain. Television, movies, and just common life. God's name is used in vain. What does it mean to use God's name in vain? It means to profane it. Profane means to make it common or vulgar. And so uh, God's name that ought to be revered and ought to be holy is now just used as a thoughtless byword or a curse word uh, or worse. And people, if you were to confront them on it, they would go, what? What do you mean? When did I do that? Because they don't even know that they did it. They don't even think about it most of the time. I found uh, years ago, years ago, I was, um, I don't even think I was 20. Uh, I was reading through the book of Ezekiel and I found something that startled me. Now, I had read enough to know that Ezekiel was um, written uh, to the people who had been exiled into Babylon. And uh, it talks about in Ezekiel, God bringing them back to Israel after 70 years. Well, that's a neat thing. I mean, God's, God's doing that, bringing them home, coming home. That must have been a triumphant thing. But in the book of Ezekiel, God says, I want to make this clear. I didn't do it because of you. I didn't even do it necessarily for you, but I did do it because of my name. Now notice Ezekiel 36, 20 and 21. But when they came to the nations wherever they came, like Babylon when they were taken captive. They profaned my holy name 
in that people said of them. Okay, here's what the pagans are saying. These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. You know, their God wasn't even strong enough to keep them in Israel. Our gods must be better than them. We must have a better religion, better gods, a better way of life. Look what we did. We pulled them out of the land that their God gave them. And you know what God said? That profaned my name. Continue reading. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. See, uh, Israel... Every time they fell into idolatry, every time they ignored the warnings of the prophets, remember, they were still going to the temple. They were still going and offering sacrifices, but they were worshiping false gods as well. And they were trampling on the name of God. And they were stomping on it. And they were profaning it in front of other people and in front of their children. And God finally said, enough! And Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple. They treated the temple almost like a, an idol, like a place of superstition. We'll never be destroyed. The temple's here. God would never allow his house to be destroyed. God showed them, didn't he? And God allowed his people to be carried out of the land that he had brought them into, out of the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, out of the land that Joshua had led them in battle to conquer. Uh, out of that land, there they go. And these pagans are laughing, and they are mocking the true and the living God, saying, we are the powerful ones, we are the conquerors, and your God couldn't even protect you. And when they got to Babylon and places like that, people said, oh, these are the people of God that we've heard about? These are the legendary ones that knocked down the walls of Jericho and they couldn't even stay in the land. And God said, all of this was making the pagans think that my name was not holy and I was not a powerful and a true God. And it was God's people who were doing that. Think about that. If you're living outside of the will of God and you're under chastisement, you're profaning the name of God. Because you don't look blessed, and you don't look joyful, and you don't look like the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, and you don't look like God is sovereignly controlling you in a good way. You don't look like Romans 8, 28. And so God says, I brought you back into the land after 70 years because all it was doing was getting worse, and I had concern for my holy name. God's name is a holy name, and he cares about how his name is used and how it appears in front of people who aren't even saved. That's kind of amazing when you think about it. That's why God brought them back into the land. And there may be some things that you say, oh, God has blessed me. And it may be when you get to heaven, God may say, nope, it wasn't for you. It was for me. You were making me look bad, so I intervened so that my name would not be trampled underfoot by the way you were living. Something to think about. And number four, last point. What do we learn from the first three commandments? God's people are to 
represent them. We are, after all, ambassadors for Christ. What do people think of God? What do people think of your doctrine and your beliefs and your convictions based on watching you? When I worked at a grocery warehouse in Tulsa when I was 19, uh, some people came up and they said, how did you get this job? It was just a summer job. They were hard to get at that warehouse. And I said, oh, I know Jim. Jim was the manager. And someone said, how do you know Jim? And I said, oh, I go to church with him. And I watched as all that group of men on their forklifts, they looked at each other. They weren't aware that Jim went to church. And the way Jim lived and the way Jim talked didn't reflect well on Christ, I found out later. But I should have known it then when one of the men leaned over on his forklift and he said, what kind of church do you go to? I've never forgotten that because the way Jim lived and acted made my church look like something less than the bride of Christ, didn't it? I've tried to remember that because that's the way it is when we live out in the world. That's the way it is when we do business. That's the way it is in our neighborhood. That's the way it is when we go out to eat. That's the way it is when we treat people in an unkind way. What kind of church do you go to anyway? Well, that's what was happening to these exiles. People would look and, and they would say, now you're from where? Uh, Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Yeah, I uh, heard about that place. What do you do there? Oh, I'm a priest unto God, or I'm a believer in Yahweh, and I'm a carpenter, or something like that. And they might look at you in your chains, in their land, speaking their language, and they might say something like this, what kind of God do you serve anyway? This is what is happening. This is what the commandments are trying to prevent. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 he says, is it a light thing to you that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so God would say, what kind of person are you that you think serving the God, that serving the true and living God is a chore, that it's no big deal, that somehow God might be imposing on you? Is that what you think? No, you were sent here to be a light. Even Israel was to be a light to the nations. They didn't do a very good job, do they? And I'm afraid that we're not either, if we were to be honest. You see, people don't see God, but they do see us. What are they seeing and what are they thinking about him? And it's a great honor to be one of God's servants. You remember in the Psalms, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God, right? And his work through us is to make us a light to the nations and not a reproach. And you see, Israel, through their idolatry, through their violation of these commandments, they became a reproach to God. People weren't seeing the glory and the grandeur and the power of God. They thought God was weak. They thought he was defeated. They thought he was worthless. When in truth, the idols they worshiped were the worthless ones. And the devil used God's own people 
to make idolatry more entrenched among the Babylonians instead of having people that they would see serving the true God, making them want to forsake their dead, worthless, demon-inspired uh, idols to worship the true and the living God. Well, what a challenge for us. That's the way our life is supposed to be as salt and as light, that others may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And they ought to be asking us a reason for the hope that we have, right? And then we tell them about the cross and about Jesus and about redemption and about forgiveness from sins. And it's all by grace, all through faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about it. We read those first three commandments so casually sometimes, but they are power-packed, and they really do. They really do instruct us as to how God wants us to live in this world as the righteousness within us comes out of us in everything we do for the glory of God. God bless you, and thank you for taking the time to watch this. For whatever your reason may be, uh, may be, you may have missed Sunday school. I'm glad you're watching this and you're keeping up. And I always want to say thank you to our Sunday school teachers. You do a wonderful job, and you're making a great impact on people's lives. Thank you for what you do, and may the Lord bless you, and I pray that you have a wonderful week.